0: listening to the Alan Carter show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome to the program. How you feeling today? You feel good? You know, I feel almost as good as the CEO of Purell. That's how that's how happy I am. Hey, here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to get myself a whole bunch of uh, rubbing alcohol and some gel and I'm going to start making hand sanitizer in my bathroom and then I'm going to start selling it to my panicky neighbors. My wife was at the pharmacist yesterday picking up some stuff and she uh, related a story about a guy comes in and says to, it kind of interrupts and says to the pharmacist, you got any hand sanitizer? I'm like, no, of course not. It's all gone. It's all, it's been gone for weeks. It's done. It's no. So he picks up a bottle, picks up a bottle of rubbing alcohol and says, will this work? Like, well, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy the rash. You know, you could just use soap, folks. This is not a time for fear. Thank you, Dr. Gabrezas. The Director General of the World Health Organization will talk more with. Dr. Ghebreyesus from his press conference this morning, what he had to say a little later on in the program. Bringing up to date on what's going on in coronavirus, you heard in the news, two new cases. Now we have our first case of travel from Italy, keeping our eye on that. But I want to begin with Alex Manassian in court. It is a pre-trial motion today in which he admitted, or at least there is a videotape where he admits to doing what he is accused of doing, which is namely killing 10 people. In injuring 16, he faces 10 counts of first-degree murder, 16 counts of attempted murder in connection with the attack on April 23rd of 2018. And interesting that the judge has already said so far that this case is going to turn on Manassian's state of mind at the time of the attack, not whether or not he did it. Our Karen Lieberman is actually in the court right now, tweeting from inside court. Let me bring you up to date to what is just happening. Court has just now resumed. Manassian is in a white shirt with a shaved head. Ms. Lieberman, who has covered this case in the past, says that uh, Manassian appears to have lost a lot of weight. Karen Lieberman tweeting this morning, let me explain why we're here. This is a pre-trial motion hearing. The lawyer for Manassian is fighting over the admissibility of a statement the accused gave to a booking officer after his arrest. When Manassian replied to an officer's question when he was being booked, he said, quote, I am a murdering piece of, and I'll let you fill that in. He also told another officer in response to a question that he wanted to, quote, die by cop. Manassian's lawyer, Boris Potensky, is seeking to have those videotaped statements made at a police station ruled inadmissible. Later on on the program, Joseph Newberger, our criminal lawyer specialist, will uh, join us he's a, a lawyer works in uh, the criminal sphere and will give a better sense of what it is that this case hinges on again the judge really outlining it there that it's going to all come down to the state of mind and at the end of the day i think the question is is going to be not if alex manassian is going to jail for the rest of his life but where is he going to a penitentiary or will he be at Cam H? And will we have to worry about day passes coming up going forward? We're keeping an eye on that. Also, of course, we have an Amber Alert. Did you get that? Did your phone go off at midnight? A 14-year-old boy who police believe was forced into a Jeep and abducted on Wednesday morning. Toronto Police issuing that Amber Alert. At about 12 a.m., they say they are extremely concerned for his safety. Here is Inspector Jim Gotell with an absolutely terrifying clip from a press press conference this morning.
2: We were able to uh, confirm that earlier that day at about 8.26 on uh, on Wednesday morning that a 14-year-old boy was observed uh, to be screaming, help me, help me, and to be forced into a uh, black Jeep Wrangler by two males. And uh, that vehicle was driven away.
1: Catherine McDonald is on this case for us and joins me on the phone. Catherine, what do we know at this point?
3: Well, there are uh, lots of officers who are uh, working on this case. Obviously, a high priority to get this little boy home safely. Um, I am out here on Driftwood Avenue, which is near Jane and Finch, uh, and it is a townhouse complex. And um, the camera from what, where this video of this uh, vehicle of interest was taken is not far from where... Um, Shama Jolayemi lives, um, and uh, this is obviously the the best piece of video evidence they have, but there are officers on uh, on horses, there are officers on foot, they're canvassing for more video because they're trying to figure out where he is, and uh, everywhere you look, you see officers, and um, I'm talking to people, and some of them knew this uh, young boy, he's 14 years old, but the concern is great because they don't know who these two people are, these, uh, these uh, people who were seen um, grabbing him and putting him in, in this dark colored Jeep Wrangler, which uh, may be a stolen vehicle for all the police to know. But the question is why. Uh, police also have been uh, asking for the stepbrother, um, whose name is Ola Osi Osikoya, to be in contact with them. It's unclear if they have now made contact with that stepbrother or not. From what I'm hearing, police will be updating this case within the next couple of hours. But clearly, if they had found uh, Shema by now, we would have heard about it. And uh, there's a lot of police activity out here as they search for this young man.
1: It was interesting. I listened to that clip from the inspector where they talk about the stepbrother and they make the point that, while well, this, this person is not a suspect. But try and read between the lines there what the police are saying, if you could, for me, Catherine.
3: Well, I mean, my educated guess is that... Um, maybe something's happened with the stepbrother that gives them reason to believe there was a, a, a motive to abduct uh, young Shema. I mean, I I don't. To me, this a stranger abduction is very, very un- uncommon. Um, and so, why this young boy? Is it does it have something to do with his stepbrother? um or uh, you know it, to me that's that's really what i'm hearing is there's a, they need to talk to the stepbrother to figure out what a, the motive might have been and in the meantime um there's concern in the neighborhood people are going about their day but you, you see the with the police presence it's just not every day you see you know, horses walking through the neighborhood officers canvassing cars driving around police cars everywhere um and of course the amber alert now enters into it's 12th hour and 13th hour, and, you know, I, I don't remember the last time we've had an Amber Alert that went on this long. So uh, usually as they as time goes on, the concern uh, it becomes greater.
1: Can we just switch to uh, a, a talk about the timeline? Because there's a lot of concern about this because the, the actual alleged abduction happens, what, at 8.30 in the morning on Wednesday? And then the Amber Alert doesn't come out to almost midnight. Can you explain that for me?
3: So, from what we've, we've been told from Toronto Police, the family reported that uh, Shema Jolayami did not come home from school around 5.30, and that's when they called police. And I, I have children in elementary school. I know when my children don't arrive at school in the morning, I, I get these automated phone calls uh, from the school. That, I understand for parents who have children who are older in high school, they don't get those messages until later in the day. So it's possible the family was unaware that their son had been um, abducted. And and from what I understand, police, after getting the call saying their son had not come home, that's when they began canvassing, and that's when they got this video and, and Likely also witnesses who might have heard this young man yelling "Help me, help me!" or seen this, or maybe I'm standing not far from where this video camera is. Maybe you know it, it's possible that you could actually um, sort of see from his body language that that's what he was yelling. But
1: but, but still, also, we, like, there's, there's a number of hours there. Even if and and I can concur. I mean, I have a daughter in grade nine and. You know, every time I get a notice, it's when I'm sitting on the anchor desk between 5.30 and 6.30, my phone right. goes off for that. So, right. sure, okay, I, I accept that, but then there still seems to be a long lag time here.
3: So, yeah. So, let's say the police did get this video within an hour or two. Um, from As you and I know, they have to meet a certain criteria before the Amber Alert is enacted. And I think when our newsroom was, because we, of course, the missing persons... Uh, you know, we are very concerned for safety. That tweet went out around, I think, just after 10 o'clock. And from what I understand, they were telling news outlets like Global, we are waiting on an amber alert. This is going to go amber alert. So at that point, it's a matter of you've got to be in touch with the, the amber alert people. You know, they've got to check off all these boxes. And it's, it's a matter of, you know, it can take an hour uh, from the time when police say we, we believe this, is, this meets the criteria.
1: Well, perhaps more discussions about uh, the effectiveness of the Amber Alert system is for another day because the concern right now is for the well-being of this young boy.
3: Right, and the family remains in their uh, townhouse. Uh, they had we, police have been coming and going can you you know thinking about what they must be going through uh, and, and whether they know more than we know about you know the 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 reason uh, police want to speak with the stepbrother a, a lot of unknowns here but let's hope that they find this young man and bring him home safely C-
1: Catherine do we, do we know where police will be updating uh, is there a command post where they'll be doing that at the scene
3: I have been told the update will be at 31 division which is not far from here on North Finch uh, that being said you know there is no command post here, but there are police officers, you know, you see cars, you see officers patrolling on foot. So there's a, a heightened police presence. Um, and I'm, I know the police are throwing a lot at this. So uh, I have a feeling if there is some news to be updated, they will, they, they will get it out quickly.
1: Catherine McDonald, our crime specialist. Thanks, Catherine. You're welcome. Of course, if there is any update throughout the course of the day, stay with us here on Global News Radio. We will bring that to you as soon as it happens again. Police searching for a 14-year-old boy that they believe was forced into a Jeep and abducted on Wednesday morning. We're going to get you updated on what's going on at Queen's Park and the teachers' teachers' unions uh, conducting another protest at Queen's Park today. And a number of the teachers' unions are staging either province-wide or select board walkouts today. More on that and what Doug Ford had to say. But I want to talk really quickly about coronavirus. And here is my good friend, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus from the World Health Organization. This is not just a threat for individual people or individual countries, we are all in this together. We are all in it together, which means stop hoarding toilet paper. Cut it out. Seriously. It's ridiculous. Got home yesterday, discovered my wife had stocked up on toilet paper. I'm like, what, what are you doing? She's like, well, it was on sale. Uh, Ontario Health Authority say two new cases of the coronavirus have been identified here in this province. These latest cases are a woman who returned to Kitchener from Italy and a man who returned to Toronto from Iran. The province's chief medical officer of health says the total number of cases in the province now 22. Dr. David Williams says everyone who has tested positive for the virus so far has been isolated. That there are more cases is not surprising that we now have a case of travel from Italy, that is worth noting. But yet again, we still don't have any evidence of community spread in terms of we don't have any evidence that it is just freely outspreading amongst the general population of southern Ontario. I think for a lot of people, the big question you have right now is, should you fly? Should you get on an airplane? Two weeks tomorrow, I am flying to Switzerland for a snowboarding trip that I have been dreaming about forever. It's been booked for a year. Should I fly? Should you fly? Well, this from Forbes today. Is flying on a plane with other sick passengers dangerous? It depends on who you ask and where you're sitting. A recent study by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that the 11 closest people seated near the sick sick passenger had an 80% chance of becoming infected themselves. The researchers ran a network-based transmission model and a simulation to estimate chances of becoming infected. The 11 closest people. I tell you what, if you are flying, do not sneeze. Because everybody's just going to jump up and run away from you. Which might actually, now that I think of it, who needs business class? Look at all the legroom I can get. (laughs) And... Finally, for this segment, I'll take you around the world a little later on in the show, but uh, Baby Yoda is now involved in coronavirus. Yesterday, it was James Bond on the run. Now, Baby Yoda has been impacted. Merchandise featuring the adorable breakout star of The Mandalorian was expected to hit stores in May of this year, but Hasbro has announced that the worldwide coronavirus outbreak will likely cause production delays. You will not be able to get... baby yoda stuffy now is not the time for fear let's get to queens park and the teachers strike i want to play this for you this is doug ford in the house today saying this entire dispute comes down to this
2: this comes down to one thing this comes down to compensation and benefits
1: And the reason Doug Ford is saying that, of course, is that earlier this week, the education minister climbed down on a number of issues, including class sizes and mandatory online learning. But yet we still have a walkout and we still have a protest on the lawn of Queens Park. Travis Damrash is our Queens Park Bureau chief, joins me on the line. Travis, how are you feeling?
0: (laughs) I'm feeling fine. Are you sure? I'm feeling Are you
1: touching Uh, your face?
0: (laughs) I am not. I'm not, and I am uh, holding to very good procedures for washing my hands, and I have hand sanitizer, etc. Really? Uh, you want to sell it to I, me? No, <laughs> they're going for 400 bucks. apparently online. <laughs> Listen, I think that the mood from some of the teachers and educators that are outside is similar to what we saw. We saw this very same scene play out in front of Queen's Park last month on February 21st. Uh, the, the, there's a significant change, though, as you just talked about, in terms of the government policy from the 21st. Uh, right now we have this big announcement on Tuesday with the education minister saying he is going to move on things like class sizes and e-learning. Two big sticking points that uh, you know unions have been talking about for months now. 23 to 1 as opposed to 25 to 1 and initially it was actually 28 to 1 and also the mandatory e-learning, well that's now opt-in. However, you know, I was just outside talking to a lot of these educators, and they say 23 to 1 still means job losses. OSSTF, which is the high school teachers' union, says that that will result in about 1,000 teaching positions lost.
1: So That's a minimal loss. though. I mean, that, doesn't that strike you as a little bit of a thin argument?
0: Well, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. Certainly, you know, for uh, Harvey Bischoff, who is the president of osstf it is not, uh, a, you know, small number. He says that any teaching position's loss are significant. But when you when you hear the premier, and the premier has been, for the past couple of days since this announcement has been made, he has been out in front. He's answering questions when usually you would see him defer that immediately to the education minister. He's making the point today, as did Stephen Lecce, that this is a solid deal. And as you played the clip, that this boils down to compensation now. So the big question, though, Alan, is Is public opinion going to shift, and is it going to shift on side of the government now that they say that they're going to make these moves?
1: Well, I, and I've said all along that, that this, this move by the government is really designed to backfoot the unions. It was not designed to get a deal, because if it was designed to get a deal, they would have done it at the table, they wouldn't have done it at a podium. But I, here's what I don't understand, Travis, is that you know the union's like, wow, how come you're negotiating in public? Well, why don't we have any negotiation dates? They're not even planning to sit down.
0: Yeah, and so ELECTA, which is the Catholic Teachers Union, is with the government today. However, they are the only union with the government that has uh, a date scheduled. So OSSCF who they have rotating strikes today, uh, AEFO, which is the French Teachers Union, also out today, and uh, ETSPO, the Elementary Teachers Union, they don't have any bargaining dates set. Now, uh, the, the, the issues on the elementary side are a little bit different, uh, and one of the complaints now is that because you have brought the high school classes down to 23 to 1, well, now uh, ETFO is saying, well, listen, now high school classes are going to be smaller than elementary classes. So... You know, I, I think we're at a bit of a stalemate, but has this moved the needle at all? Um, it seems as though with the Catholic teachers, it may have. And what you may see playing out in the weeks to come here is that one union caves, one union gets a deal, such as the Catholic teachers, and then there's going to be more pressure on the other unions to do so. And, and then. Alexa,
1: that has and been the strategy all along, is it, to peel off the, the weakest of the unions, or the least militant of the unions, if I can use okay. that term, to so the weakest.
0: And Electa has already said, Alan, they said this uh, earlier this week, I believe, that they are, are no longer going to fight on that 2%. They said that they'll let that play out in court, because there is this ongoing litigation right now, Bill 124 is being challenged. But they say that they wanted to see moves on class sizes and e-learning. Now that that's happened, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to make the argument that this is not a good deal. And the unions largely have, you know, kind of put themselves in a corner because all along they've been saying this is about class size, this is about e-learning, and not about compensation. Well... Education Minister Stephen Lethshay saying that is all that's left on the table.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's an attempt here to call a bluff, but here is where I go with a pox on all their houses, is because both sides seem to be more interested in scoring political points than actually finding a deal, and I include the government in that.
0: Well, there certainly is bluster, right? I, I mean, on, on, on both sides. And, and, you know, I don't know if the unions can say... That the education minister is uh, bargaining in public because you know they're also doing press conferences. I mean, yes, Stephen Lecce did not tell the unions on Tuesday that he was going out, but you know, as soon as we came out of that media studio, there were uh, there was Liz Stewart and Harvey Bischoff from the uh, two education unions ready to go, and we have seen them in front of the cameras often. So on both sides. there's there's blame to share and i don't think parents at the end of the day care about that they care about a deal they care about not having to take time off work to take care of their kids and they want this story to be over frankly the story has gone on for it seems like now uh months and it has been because the contract expired in august of last year
1: how big's the crowd today
0: so it's a little bit smaller than it was last time because, as I mentioned, ETSO, the biggest union in the province, is not part of today's walkout. They were expecting about 15,000 people or so, and I'm not going to get into the game of trying to estimate how many folks are out there, but it is, just from eyeballing it, significantly smaller uh, than it was on the 21st when we saw all four unions, but still a, a pretty strong show of force here at Queen's Park.
1: 100 bucks for your san- hand sanitizer, okay, Travis. No,
0: no, I'm keeping my Purell. Thank you. 100, 125. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Once we get up to the four or five. Oh, we man. We're all in
1: this together. We're all in it together. That's what Dr. We Tedros Gabrezas says. There you go. Travis Danraj, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, thank you so much for being on the program.
0: <laughs> Anytime for you. <laughs>
1: That's nice. Anytime for me, but to no hand sanitizer. Not going to share that. Welcome back to the program. Happening in court right now, Alex Manassian in a pre-trial hearing in which a video has been played for the court in which Manassian admits to carrying out the van attack. Now, does that mean that I can stop saying alleged driver of the van, the alleged killer of 10 who drove down a busy Toronto sidewalk in 2018? Well, the judge in the case so far has already said that this case no longer hinges on whether or not Alex Manassian did this. What it hinges on is his mental fitness at the time in whether or not he should stand trial or what his punishment should be because of that joseph newberger joins me on the line criminal lawyer and a specialist in all of this joe thanks for being on the program
2: Oh, my pleasure thank you
1: This seems like a bit of a surprise because what's happening here is it appears that manassian's lawyer is attempting to have this thrown out this his arrest when he was arrested and actually admits to officers at the time of his arrest, that he did it. Why would the lawyer be trying to do that?
2: Yeah, so at best as I understand, there was a statement provided by Mr. Manassian at the time of what we call the booking. So when somebody's arrested and brought into a police station, they're then presented to a sergeant, and there are certain questions asked of an individual. Um, they confirm name, address, and all sorts of other things. That is prior to an accused having the ability to speak to a lawyer. So assuming that Mr. Manassian had received his rights prior to being brought to the station and had said, um, yes, I'd like to speak with a lawyer, once being booked, um, he might have uh, spontaneously started talking about the offense prior to actually exercising his rights, because it's a little confusing for some people, because when they're being booked, they're being asked questions, and then sometimes spontaneously they talk. So the defense lawyer in this case may be trying to argue that this was prior to exercising his rights, or the rights had not been properly given to him at that time, and so the statement provided during the booking phase, which was recorded, would be inadmissible.
1: So Um, the original charge is attempted murder, and the, uh, the officer who did the initial booking is on the stand right now, and I'm reading along from Twitter saying that he had no information that, uh, that anyone had died, nor did he have any information that uh, Manassian had tried to prompt a police officer to shoot him. So that was why the, the initial charge was attempt murder. But, okay. Joe, Joe, my, my, my question is, is that then later, and we've already seen this video a full interrogation, which after I'm assuming Mr. Manassian has been offered all of his rights, in which Mr. Manassian essentially in that interview admits to doing everything. So is this point not moot?
2: Yeah, I kind of agree. I hear you. And actually, you raised an interesting point, so I'll just clarify one other thing. If when Manassian was brought in, all he was facing was uh, attempt murder, and in fact, some people had passed away, then there's also an issue about being recautioned because of the new charges. So that could be the argument. When you compare the two statements, I'm not sure there's much of a difference, because I did have some opportunity through commenting with with your uh, station about what that video says. It seems to me To be uh, consistent with what we're reading now as the booking statement. So it does seem to me to be a bit moot, but there may be a strategic reason that the defense is trying to have this removed and then just rely on the video that was provided to police. But I'm not sure what else is going to be, uh, what other things the lawyer is going to try and attempt to exclude, but it does seem that the case is squarely focused on uh, his state of mind at the time and possibly a not criminally responsible defense.
1: Does, does that am I right when I say not fit for trial is that right
2: It's close so not fit for trial is different than not criminally responsible so an individual can be suffering from a major mental illness and not be able to uh, proceed with the trial because they're so disorganized that they're not able to appreciate the proceedings so they can't meaningfully communicate with counsel and they can't meaningfully um, uh, give instructions and that could be because they're illness is so severe and they're not being treated. On the other hand, there are some people who suffer from a major mental illness, can be schizophrenia, can be delusional disorder, all sorts of things, and they do have the low threshold of fitness, but they still may not be criminally responsible because of their um, mental disorder.
1: So, th- the judge has already said that the trial will hinge on his state of mind at the time. So, right. like going forward, all like all of this admissibility stuff and all the rest of that in terms of the booking, like really, from what I'm hearing from the judge, none of this matters because really, it's going to be a question about his mental state that day
2: right. but but one of the best indicators of his mental state are these statements because these are real time uh Arons is by an accused shortly after the offense, and if it's indicating a knowledge that actions are illegal, that they are morally wrong in Canada, and that he, in fact, did uh, seek to kill individuals as a result of um, his you know, influence by that website, these are all very, very important indicators of what his state of mind is. And whether he may or may not have been suffering from a mental disorder, that's just one part of the test even if suffering from a mental disorder, that has to have been really operative at the time of his offending to rob him of the ability to appreciate the nature and quality of his acts or that it was wrong. And so these statements, in my opinion, are very important to to see in real time uh, how his behaving, how he's acting, and then hear what his utterances are as to what his own behavior was. So I think this is very important evidence, and I think strategically the defense wants to exclude this because they feel maybe this is more damaging to their argument than the other statement.
1: Just from a broadcasting point of view is a selfish question, but if this is admissible, this admission of guilt, yeah, can I
2: stop saying alleged? Yeah. I, I think it's no longer a question of whether he did it. It's just a question of whether he's responsible for it in law, given some mental disorder that they're going to try and um, say was operative at the time. So, so
1: I don't have right. to wait till the end of the court proceedings to then say Alex Manassian killed ten people?
2: No, it seems pretty clear on the facts, and, I, and, and the defense seems to be conceding the actual acts. It's just whether the mental element was there.
1: Joe Newberger, thanks so much for being with us.
2: My pleasure. Take care.
1: Welcome back to the program. Half of all marriages end in divorce. How many times have you heard that? How many times you've actually been to a wedding and somebody turns you and go 50-50? 50-50 shot here. That stat is actually incorrect. The most recent or one of the more recent estimates back in 2008 was about 4 in 10 marriages in Canada will break up within 30 years. However, what is on the rise is the number of divorces for older Canadians. What is known as gray divorce. It's a term that references a divorce between couples, usually from the baby boomer generation, hello boomer, who have been married a significant number of years, 30, 40, maybe 50 years. And gray divorce, divorces have particular challenges. To talk more about that, I am joined by Laura Paris, who is an associate lawyer at Shulman & Partners. Hi Laura, how are you feeling?
4: Hi, I'm well, and yourself?
1: You sure you're okay? You're not...
4: Uh- I'm sorry?
1: Are you sweating at all? Are you running a fever?
4: You know what? I am feeling a little bit under the weather, but Are I'm feeling nothing too bad. I am at home today.
1: Please don't come into work.
4: I will not.
1: <laughs> uh, right, well, I hope you get better, Laura, but what's your Thank advice you. uh, for those of us who uh, may be of a certain vintage, you've been married for a long time, and then think to yourself, no, I want to go and see the world on my own?
4: When it comes to uh, these grey divorces, uh, it does present some unique uh, some unique challenges that we don't see in uh, divorces of, of younger couples. Uh, what that comes down to is that typically when you are getting divorced uh, in these grey divorces, you're already in retirement where you've stopped working and you're no longer earning an income. And therefore, the family unit is not generating um new wealth anymore and kind of living off of the resources that they built throughout the relationship so when we're dealing with these gray divorces there's three main things that um that we find uh adds a, a certain level of complexity one is as i said retirement um you know usually when you have planned uh when you have planned for retirement during the relationship you've planned it in a in a manner that you are taking care of one household, that you want to make sure that you have enough resources that are going to, um, you know, carry you through to be able to maintain this one household. So maybe your focus has been to, you know, make sure you don't have a mortgage so that 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 expense is alleviated and, uh, you know, the income that you're receiving, any sort of retirement income you're receiving, is going really just to kind of maintain a lifestyle. Um, The second thing that that adds a, a layer of complexity to this is, life insurance policies. If you are in a, uh, and this is common in the baby boomer uh, generation where there was one spouse who stayed home to take care of the children, Sacrificed their career, and usually in doing so, their retirement savings isn't as great as their spouse's would be. Um, Usually, the reason for that is sometimes the spouse who's working has an employee pension, or they just have a greater share of money to put into um, some sort of um, retirement vehicle. That said, when it comes down to retirement, when you look at what uh, income is being received by the family unit, usually there's a greater share that's being received from. Uh, the individual who was working during the relationship opposed to the one who wasn't. In that circumstance, when you're separating, you're going to be looking for support. Life insurance becomes relevant in these great divorces because there's also the the Reasonable likelihood that your spouse may predecease you, and if you are counting on support from them, uh, you know until until your last day, you want to make sure that you have that there's some sort of security in place that if they do predecease you, you are able to still uh, get that support. And these are these are circumstances where we do recommend that life insurance policies um, are put in place in order to ensure that that support is secured.
1: This is some dark stuff, Laura. This is dark. <laughs>
4: Is I mean it's it, again it's something that um you know you don't think about a lot of people don't plan for divorce they plan when they're looking to you know when they're looking towards retirement again they're they're just hoping like okay are we going to be able to kind of just maintain this lifestyle right. It's only one house that we have to keep. Usually you hope. I mean, I think things are changing now. I don't know for the younger generation that they're going to be able to be mortgage-free uh, when they're retiring. But uh, the baby boomers, I think a good portion of them are mortgage-free um, in, in retirement. So, you know, that that's something definitely that you need to think about. What about um,
1: the I- adult kids? Because they're going to get in there with their elbows up going, hey, no, wait, that's mine
4: absolutely so that's that's the that's the third uh, the third layer of complexity that we add to this and um, definitely adult children uh, do do take a greater interest in their parents divorce uh, when when it is a when it is a great divorce and the reason being is that that is the way that this money is being divided will ultimately have an impact of on any sort of inheritance that they receive and in those circumstances of course the adult children start to take an interest with well how are you allocating these resources how much money are you spending on lawyers you know uh things like that what are you doing with our inheritance um and are you protecting it and are you making you know you making the right decisions so you know usually when we're dealing when we're only dealing with uh you know mom and dad or husband and wife or whatever the case may be now when you're dealing with these great divorces you start to kind of get the peanut gallery from the uh adult children uh chiming in and uh giving, you know, giving their opinions on how things uh, need to be divided and et cetera.
1: All right, Laura, let me paint a picture for you. Let's just pretend there's a guy named Bob. He's driving on the 401 right now. He's 63 years old. He's been married for 25, almost 30 years. It's driving him crazy. What he really wants to do is go and and live in Ireland uh, and, you know, be a peat farmer. Uh, and he wants to do that on his own. Should you? What's your advice to him? Just suck it up, man, to forget about it. You're going to screw up your life, or what?
4: Uh, I necessarily say that. I mean, like, it, it, it is difficult. It is a, a difficult uh, decision to make. I mean, I, I think that there definitely is as much as finances are important, there's also a, a, a price on mental health and being in a situation where uh, you're happy. And I think a lot of people, when they when they are reaching the age of retirement um, and and are entering into retirement, this is the time for you to, you know, kind of enjoy the fruits of your labor and enjoy life. You don't want to be spending that time with someone who makes you miserable so the first step that i would that the first suggestion that i would get to give to bob is go talk to a lawyer understand what your exposure is uh once you have a greater understanding of that then perhaps the next step is to be speak to a financial advisor are these dreams in ireland achievable Uh, if you are if you are getting divorced um those are those are probably the two main things that i would say at that point i mean it depends on how bob was with his finances uh, throughout his life and if he made smart financial choices and is in a situation that he can, you know, rebuild wealth if he makes, uh, continues to make for, smart financial choices moving forward, uh, then it, it, it could be that, that Bob could still live this dream. Um, obviously, in some circumstances, the money isn't there, and, and it, may, it may be more worthwhile to possibly consider something like marriage counseling and see if they can find a way to make it work. But uh, that said, I mean, it, it depends on every individual situation.
1: Laura Paris is an associate lawyer at Schulman and Partners with some advice for an imaginary peat farmer. Thank you so much.
4: <laughs> Thank you so much. That,
1: that, is, that is dark, but I'll tell you, here's, here's one thing. Have you done this? When we go to the kids, when we get together, you know, my, my grown sisters, uh, the, the adult kids, we get together at mom and dad's house, we often joke about just going around the house and putting stickers with our names on on the bottom of things. Just wondering around like, this vase looks nice. I'll put my name on the... Oh, wait a minute. Jennifer's already got her name on it. (laughs) It's a a dark house at uh, the Carter household. Uh, I wanted to bring you up to date a couple of COVID-19 updates. Uh, Fears of the coronavirus have now led to the postponement of a three-day ultra-electronic dance music festival in Miami. City officials say the official announcement expected tomorrow... It's things called the Ultra Electronic Dance Music Festival may be postponed to 2021. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization saying today there are about 17 times as many new infections outside of China as in it. Widening outbreaks in South Korea, Italy, in Iran, responsible for a majority of the new cases. And you heard in the news that we have a new case here in Ontario with travel history to Italy. That is the first time that has happened. Palestinian officials have shuttered the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and the closure comes weeks just ahead of the Easter holiday season that usually draws tens of thousands of visitors and worshipers to the traditional birthplace of Jesus. Iran, which continues to be the epicenter of the virus in the Middle East, said it's going to set up checkpoints now to limit travel between major cities and has urged citizens to reduce their use of paper money. To fight the spreading outbreak. No cash. Here in Canada, the federal government here this morning posting a new alert warning against all travel to Iran. Global Affairs Canada says the travel restrictions imposed to control the spread of COVID-19 are making it increasingly difficult to leave that country. So even if you get in, you may not be able to get back out. Ottawa also warning against non-essential travel to China and urging Canadians to be extremely cautious about any travel to Japan. Canada's two largest airlines now announcing that they will waive change fees in light of concerns over coronavirus. Air Canada says a one-time change is permitted for tickets that were purchased from the airline between March 4th and March 31st for travel within 12 months. The fee waiver applies to up to 14 14 days before travel. I'm not. I have to read that a little carefully because I'm flying Air Canada to Zurich on March the 20th. I have talked about on this program before my trip to go snowboarding in the Alps. I'm going to Zermatt. Shiba Siddiqui is with me, Shiba. I like to get a I like to get your update on almost a nearly daily basis. What you said in last, ninety percent. You thought I would go. What's your update now? What percentage do you think that trip is going,
3: Carter? I think you're at ninety nine percent.
1: Ninety nine percent, simply
3: because you like conflict, and I think that the more they tell you not to go, the more determined you'll be to get on that plane. Yeah, but
1: I, my concern here is is that the the collapse in the appetite to fly that there just won't be anybody else flying, and Air Canada will just say, "Well, we're just running the plane."
3: I think that you're okay for Switzerland for now.
1: Okay. We're all in this together. Thank you, Dr. Gabraisis. Thank you, Dr. Gabraisis.